Hello everyone and welcome once again to the Ultimate Motorcycling Weekly Podcast, Motos and Friends. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motoguzzi just launched the new V100 Mandelo S and senior editor Nick DeSena went to the event in Italy. The hallowed Italian mark has radically redesigned its flagship motor while managing to keep its iconic V-twin look. There are some big changes though, and not just to the motor. The new Guzzi looks fast and sporting. Nick gives us his thoughts and tells us whether the new Guzzi actually delivers on its considerable promise. In our second segment, Associate Editor TJ Adams chats with artist Carl Hoffman. We recently met Carl at his art gallery H in the small historic town of Tubac, Arizona. Carl's life journey has been nothing short of extraordinary, and of course it has involved motorcycles pretty much all the way. As a painter and jewellery designer, Carl's fine art and spectacular jewellery is its absolutely spellbinding. As an artist herself, TJ spent a long time talking to him and admiring the fruit of his considerable talents. His life story turned out to be so compelling that she decided on the spot that she'd like to talk to him and share it with you. This is the first part of two. So, from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling, we hope you enjoy this episode. The 2023 Moto V100 Mandelo S, but basically the V100 Mandelo platform, of which there are a few different models. Uh, two mainstay models, you have the standard V100 Mandelo and then the S model, which is the up-spec. There's some stuff we'll get into with that. And then there's also a limited edition model that celebrates the, if I'm going to get this right, um, let me just butcher some Italian. Avizione Navale, which I think means Air Navy. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> right. I'm joking. It's it's uh, it celebrates their Navy and and um, you know Navair essentially, uh, what I would call Navair uh, from a, an American perspective. But the, it, it comes in a limited edition livery that is supposed to mimic the F-35B, which is currently flown by the Italian Naval Air Force. Um, again, there's probably a proper name for that that I could easily look up. However, um, there we go. But it comes in this gunship gray, you know, has a sort of, um, you know, fighter, jet fighter sort of aesthetic to it. It's very cool in that regard. And that's a limited edition um, supplement to this, this product line. But realistically, when you talk about the, the standard issue models, you're talking about the V100 Mandelo in standard trim and then the, the upspec S. So anyway, that was a long way to say that we're going to be talking about 2.5 motorcycles today. Okay. All right. They have a lot of similarities. And let me just break down what the difference is between the standard and the S actually are. So when you talk about the S model, that comes in at $17,490. And for that extra few few grand on the trot, you're going to be getting some extras, obviously. Now the first and the biggest extra is going to be semi-active Olin's suspension. That is the EC smart 
2.0 system that we are pretty much familiar with at this point. It's on a lot of different up-spec sport touring models. It's on pretty much all of the up-spec super bikes, you know, from Ducati, Aprilia, which is part of the Piaggio group that Moto Guzzi is a part of, the R1M, the Honda CBR, R, 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 SP, and, you know, everything else yeah. in that regard. Now you get that stuff and that's kind of the biggie, but with the other, uh, the other accoutrement, you get an up-down quick shifter, uh, tire pressure monitoring system, heated grips, which work really well. And then you also get Bluetooth connectivity. So you can interact with the proprietary Moto Guzzi Mia uh, system and use navigation uh, and things like that on your dash. Um, now the conventional standard model that comes in at $15,490 and it uses uh, conventional KYB suspension, not fully adjustable, semi-adjustable at each end. And um, of course, all the other things save for the Olin suspension, you can add as an optional accessory. But that just really talks about the pricing for each of the two main motorcycles and of course, their differences. Now, we only rode the standard, so that's where my perspective is really going to be coming from. But obviously, you can sort of extrapolate and see how a lot of the things that we're talking about today will apply to the standard model as such. <clears throat> so I guess to start at the beginning with the engine, the motor is the classic uh, V-twin, but by now it's water-cooled, I take it. Yeah, so this is a pretty revolutionary thing in the sense that the the 1042cc liquid-cooled dual overhead cam 90-degree V-twin engine is water-cooled. It's a first for the brand overall. As we know, Moto Guzzi, it's always been, well, first V-twin, but more, more importantly, it's been air-cooled pretty much since day one. And when you think about this engine in particular, that is sort of emblematic of the brand moving forward. Obviously, making air-cooled engines past Euro 5 emission standards and beyond is becoming more and more and more difficult. Uh, to do that, you're going to be increasing displacement, adding different catalytic converters, adding weight, and eventually that's, that's going to have diminishing returns for an air-cooled platform. In, you know, other brands are, are facing these issues as well. On the American side, we can think about Harley-Davidson, for example. Um, a lot of their models are forward-thinking, case in point, the new Nightster. So when we talk about the, the V100 power plant, yes, it does have that iconic 90-degree uh, architecture. And if you look at it from the front of the motorcycle, it still has that iconic silhouette, you know, the jug sticking out of the side. It's almost immediately recognizable. Pretty much nothing looks like this with the 90 degree V-twin layout where they stick up at that, that upward angle. So, you know, they still retain that visual identity. Now, in terms of riding experience as well, this is a completely modern motorcycle. I mean, when you look at the specs on it and just read the, the engineering details, you know, we're seeing things like a modern finger follower valve train. Of course, it has dual overhead cams just this huge list of low, um, low inertia components to allow it to spin up more aggressively, far more aggressively than we've known Moto Guzzi engines of the past. 
And on that end, you're seeing something like 115 horsepower and 77 foot-pounds of torque. Now, for me, that's a really important number to seize, seize on for this conversation because, yes, the engine is more energetic than previous Gucci motorcycles that I've ridden in the past. It does have a much more refined and modern feel to it, the way it accelerates. But that, that horsepower and torque figure that I just mentioned is kind of right in that sweet spot for me, where I think this engine has an extremely broad appeal because of its performance levels, but even more so how it delivers that power. It's a very tractable engine, very user-friendly, and it's engaging and, and inviting for a huge amount of people, whether you're coming up from middleweights, an advanced rider, you know, it's going to cover a lot of bases. And, you know, when we talk about actually riding it, mid-range, just tons and tons of usable mid-range. So you've got great low-end torque, just huge mid-range power that you can just use all day in the canyons, whether you're riding twisty stuff or up on the highway. And it doesn't feel like it's being overworked when you're actually cruising at 80, 80 90 miles an hour uh, on the freeway. You know, which isn't something I could say of, say, the V85 TT adventure platform. So overall, yes, this engine has, you know, uh, taken one of the first big steps for Moto Guzzi in terms of technology and engineering and things like that. And it really is what we're going to be seeing in, into the future. You know, if you do look at horsepower overall, it, it's really case by case. There are examples of Moto Guzzi engines clearing, you know, the triple digit mark. You know, obviously, again, we're, we're dealing with 115 horsepower and 70, 77 foot pounds of torque. But if you talk about stuff like the V7, the V9, the V85 TT, yeah, it's making a considerable amount of extra power. Just out of curiosity, let me actually look up what a V85 TT makes. If I remember correctly, it's somewhere in that 80, 80-ish horsepower mark. So yeah, we're making it a fair bit more. Thing is, we've given up push rod technology. Um, we've gone into that, like I said, dual overhead cams, finger follower valve trains, a wet clutch, kind of a first thing. Wow. Well, not kind of first thing, first thing. Previously, you had a, a dry single plate clutch that's kind of akin to a automotive transmission. So everything about this engine is attempting to be compact, lighter weight, et cetera, et cetera. And to that end, this engine is actually 4.1 inches shorter overall than, say, the V85 TT uh, power plant. Now, that's where it does get its name. Uh, Motoguchi refers to this as the all-new compact block, quote-unquote, V-twin. So yes, it is smaller, it's tighter. Another really cool thing about this is that the intake manifolds and throttle bodies are located between the V. Now, if you think about Monoguzzi's, you're going to have to pull up a picture of this. Think about a traditional Monoguzzi. You think about where the intake and exhaust outlets are. They are in line with the motorcycle. So that exhaust outlet out of the jugs of the engine faces forward. It's kind of the classic Guzzi look and boxers do the same thing. So on this generation, they've actually rotated the cylinder heads 90 degrees. What that does is allow the exhausts to spit out the sides. Now, if you think about where the intake is, now that actually faces the interior of the engine. 
So it takes all of the, the various mechanical components and moves them essentially under the fuel tank in between the V-twins V. That gives you more room for your knees and allows a greater, we'll say, uh, uh, room for comfort, okay? But that's on the physical end of the spectrum. Um, in terms of performance, you're actually creating a much more straight line from the throttle bodies into the intake system, into the combustion chamber and out of the engine. So that's yet another reason, aside from the other things that I mentioned, why this engine makes a noticeable amount more power than other Gootsies and of the past and even recent Gootsie engines. So again, there's a lot going into this power plant. And uh, like I said, it's really that first step in the whole conversation of modern motor Gootsie. Excellent. So what does the motor feel like? Does it feel like a traditional Guzzi or, or is there, does it feel a lot faster or? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've touched on that a little bit. The first thing is you get on it, you start it up, it has that classic Guzzi thrum. But as you rev out through the rev range, I would say that it delivers its power in a much, much more tractable manner. Obviously, it's a little bit more exciting. It doesn't take it to that extra sniff of horsepower or sportiness that actually starts uh, excluding people. What I find really enjoyable about this engine is that, yes, it feels much smoother than prior Gootsy examples. And it revs up with just a far more modern feel. It's smoother. It's it revs up a little bit more aggressively, as I mentioned before, but not too much. The throttle and the, the uh, throttle maps are incredible. They're, they've done an excellent job. That's probably no small part in, uh, to the fact that Piaggio Group shares engineers between brands, and it's really a collaborative effort. Um, and then as we go into the drive shaft, that's another thing that's that really kind of elevates this whole thing because as I mentioned before it has a wet clutch so when you think about Moto Guzzi engine say say the last time we rode the V7 because I remember we did that about a year and a half ago together more or less you think about you know stuff like the V7 III or you know the V9 or whatever and the gearbox is kind of well it's old school it's chunky you're dealing with a shaft drive so there's some driveline lash there's some you know, just quirks and characteristics of shaft-driven motorcycles that are specific to that configuration. These things are improving on the V100. It feels much more refined. I know that's a buzzword, but that is one of the best ways to explain that. Now, the shaft drive in particular has some really cool things about it. Um, on the engineering front, they've instituted a lot of different damping strategies to reduce driveline lash, to reduce any shock through the system. There is still a noticeable amount of driveline lash that we mentioned or that I noticed. And realistically, that's just kind of inherent to a card in drive as, some, as it's sometimes referred to. The shaft drive, there's a lot of linkage involved, but there's some really cool stuff that they're doing here. Um, that wet clutch allows the shifting to be much smoother. So transitioning through the gears is easily the best Gootsy gearbox that I've used thus far. And then the, the, uh, the shaft drive in particular uses a couple really cool strategies. Like it doesn't actually go straight back 
from the engine. In most cases, you think about a BMW Boxer, you know, a Goldwing, older Gootsies, the shaft drive goes straight back. It's this big honking swing arm thing. And, you know, it's a whole lot of material. In this case, they've actually created what I'll describe best as a six degree offset. So the swing arm goes out of the transmission at a six degree angle. And they did that for a couple of reasons. One, it allows them to fit a much wider tire on the single-sided swing arm. So they can use a bigger tire for sportier aspirations, which we'll get into later. The other thing that it did is it allowed them to create a much more narrow packaging for the engine and the overall motorcycle. So the thing feels really narrow. Again, that's another thing we'll talk about in a couple of minutes here. But like I said before, this all ties into the fact that it just feels like a much more modern Gucci. It retains that charm. You still have that, that sort of classic Gucci feel, but it's been shoved forward a few decades. You know, when you ride those old, old Gucci's, and this is something I've always said about Moto Gucci, they, they feel the way they look. And that's not an insult. They look old school. They feel old school. They feel like a Moto Guzzi. It's just, there's something so unique about that brand overall. And despite the fact that they're using a lot of modern technologies throughout every aspect of this new platform, they still retain a lot of that identity, a lot of that taste on your palate in terms of riding experience. So that's what we're getting at here. And the final engineering thing that I wanted to save the last bit or the best for last, we'll say, has a counter-rotating shaft. So that's not to say that it has a counter-rotating crankshaft, because it doesn't. It has a secondary shaft that spins in the opposite direction of the crankshaft to counteract the gyroscopic forces on the motorcycle. Now, you and I both know that you jump on an old BMW Boxer, a Guzzi, whatever, you rev it up at idle, or when you're really hammering on it and you kind of feel that tug to the right, you know what I'm talking about? I do know exactly what you're talking about, yes. Normally that effect is, is countered by the rotation of the drive shaft. So you're saying that there's an extra shaft in there to counter the rotation of the crankshaft before any of this actually reaches the drive shaft. Exactly right. So within the engine, if you look at the schematics, um, or engineering design briefs, whatever, you'll see the crankshaft in its normal location and then a secondary counter-rotating shaft that essentially you could describe as like a primary gear. It spins in the opposite direction, helps counteract those gyroscopic forces. And Moto Guzzi didn't want that sort of classic Guzzi tug coming into play because when you ride some of the older Moto Guzzi engines or BMW boxers at really high RPM, that sort of right side tug can actually influence the bike's handling. It's, it's really interesting when you feel it for the first time because it'll kind of make the bike reluctant to turn in on one side and then snap into the, the, the corner more aggressively on the other. And this is only stuff that really happens when the thing's whirling it at pretty RPM. Or when you're at idle, you're sitting in neutral and you rev the engine, you can feel it tug to one side, which is cool. Now, the V100 still has some of that in the mix. If you sit at idle and you rev the engine out, you can still feel it, but it's not gonna affect the, the chassis when you're actually in motion. 
just doesn't generate that kind of force to do it. So again, let's just kind of think about how this engine moves Motoguzzi into the future. And that's one of the many aspects. That is very interesting. I, I, uh, I like that. Does that add a lot of weight to the engine though? Having that extra shaft? As far as I know, no. Um, one of the things that Motoguzzi really touted during this presentation is, as I mentioned before, it is shorter than the V85 TT power plant by 4.1 inches. Uh, visually, it also looks a lot more compact. They also said that it is lighter than the last eight valve engine. You know, the new packaging, everything is small. So this isn't a, a matter of taking what they've already done with say the V85, which is one of their most recent uh, newer engines and then expanding from there. No, it shares architecture in terms of just the 90 degree V-twin, but every single component is new, is much lighter, uh, much smaller. And this is an all new platform, bolt for bolt. Um, so is it lighter than, than everything else? And does that add weight to your question? I would have to fact check that 100%, but looking at it, I'm comfortable saying that it is, it is lighter than previous generations. Wow, that's that's quite a technical achievement. I have to say they've done a they've done a good job with the looks of it. So how does the motor actually feel when riding? Presumably, it's still got that V-twin low down torque and and uh, you know plenty of pull from the off and in the lower gears, even in the higher gears, I suppose. Yeah, correct. You know the the gear ratios are really nice on this bike, so you can come into corners. You know, a gear too tall sometimes three if you're lazy, um, and it has enough torque to pull you out of any situations. According to Guzzi, it makes something like 82% of its available torque at a low 3,500 RPM. V-twins just have that, that low, low and mid-range torque advantage. Just, you know, that's, that's what they do. And it's smooth. That's sort of the thing. You can, you know, wail on it or just cruise along and so that adds a lot of versatility to the platform which i think extends to the rest of the bike say the the chassis or riding position okay i mean the look of it is is pretty sporty um so i i take it it is it has a relatively sporty tune to it the fueling is probably do the, it comes with electronics i'm sure and and different power modes and how does it feel in a in a sporty kind of mode yeah so you have essentially four all-encompassing modes. And these modes affect the three selectable throttle maps, engine braking strategies, traction control settings, in case of the yes, the semi-active suspension. And it also dictates whether or not the adaptive aerodynamic deflectors will extend. Uh, that's something we'll talk about later. But focusing in on the throttling, or sorry, the throttle maps, like I mentioned earlier, it's excellent. Uh, sport is, as you'd imagine, it's quite sporty. It's not that extra sniff that an Aprilia would take things to. And I think when you're in the canyons and you're actually riding aggressively, it's quite suited for that. I would say because of how versatile the V100 Mandelo is, they might just want to back that sportiness off in, this, in the sport map, just one shade, not a lot, just, just that, just kind of take that edge off, just, but, um, 
Then you have road and that's great for just being in cities and things like that. And then touring really kind of tames things down. And I would use that on say highways or, you know, when I'm stuck in um, some pretty congested uh, traffic and then rain is well rain. So you guys can figure that one out. Um, the other part of the electronics uh, stuff that we should talk about right away is of course the up down quick shifter. That is the one of one spot of bother that I would point out with a V100 Mandel OS. And I wouldn't entirely blame the quick shifter specifically. I think quick shifters, and this is based on experience with other transverse engines and shaft driven transverse engines specifically, there is some latency, there is some driveline lash in that whole drivetrain system. And then you add a quick shifter that needs to time those shifts, uh, you know, calibrate for different gear uh, spacing between gears which requires different kill times, et cetera, et cetera, things can get a little tricky. So at low RPM, low throttle openings or small throttle openings, specifically in the first half of the gearbox can be a little jumpy. So, um, you know, a good way to work around that, what we kind of discovered was you have to be, we'll say assertive with your throttle inputs. You know, as long as you're loading the, the drivetrain, the quick shifter seems to respond much better to to that sort of sort of approach. If you're kind of just being a bit, you know, soft-handed on the throttle and you know not assertive with your inputs, then that's where you're going to get some lurching. If you use the the auto blipper at low RPM, or it, it'll kind of jerk and be a bit jumpy when you're transitioning up to the next gear again. If you just kind of give it a bit more beans. It all seems to clear up. And then if you pass the 5,000 RPM mark, that all goes away. So I think there's a little bit of a algorithmic TLC, we'll call it, that the quick shifter needs. But focusing on the transmission, like I mentioned before, pretty much all gravy. And I would credit that lower inertia, wet clutch design that does have a slip and assist feature. So much lighter clutch pull overall. Nice, nice. And uh, so you like you like the quick shifter on it. It's the gearbox. In other words, is the gearbox fairly smooth and and relatively easy, or is it just this very difficult thing to operate? No, gearbox I think is is dialed, especially when you think about what it's doing. Uh, you know, it has the the shaft drive to contend with. It is, as I mentioned before, the I would say a much better version of Motoguzzi gearboxes. Um, it's still not up to par with, say, that sport bike snickety super tight ratio thing. And really, I've yet to see a shaft-driven motorcycle achieve that, that sort of uh, uh, sort of gearbox cohesion, we'll describe. Let's just describe that as. But this is a huge step forward for the brand overall. Um, I would say my complaints are aimed specifically at the quick shifter just a few refinements to its kill times in the first half of the gearbox at lower RPM, smaller throttle openings. I think that'll really sort it out. But again, as long as you're fairly assertive with your throttle inputs, which isn't a hard thing to do at all, it's just kind of changing your riding style or adapting your riding style, we'll say, um, you know, it works, it works well. Okay. All right, so moving, moving along then to the handling, I see that it has a 
the the rear shock is on one side it's on the drive shaft side of things Correct. so that, that seems to be a sort of a little bit of a trend that the brands are moving to yeah yeah and that really just has to do with its overall design you know remember as i mentioned before the shaft drive kicks out you know six degrees so locating it to that left side uh, and having that offset design really just sort of works with this and you know there are examples of other single-sided swing arm uh, motorcycles using a similar uh, engineering solution, mainly modern Panigale motorcycles and uh, Ducati Street Fighter motorcycles. Um, to that end, the chassis is a steel trellis chassis, and this is where things kind of get interesting. Um, you know, our bike had the semi-active Olin suspension. I don't think we need to belabor you know, describing what it does because it is becoming so common on the market. I feel like you guys kind of understand what's going on there. Obviously, it adjusts damping rates as you go down the road. And for this road application, Motoguzzi has kind of simplified things. So instead of having every sort of um, uh, adjustability attribute under the sun, it takes that objective-based tuning interface and pairs it down to what the average road rider would really need. So that's gonna come down to front firmness, rear firmness, and braking support. Cool. Now Moto Guzzi takes things one step further and they have two semi-active modes, a dynamic mode, which is A1, and then a comfort mode, A2. Dynamic, in my opinion, kind of keeps things, I'll say on a, it's on the right side of the sporting fence. Um, it's not too stiff. It doesn't beat you up on, on you know, battered Italian road surfaces, cobblestones, et cetera, et cetera. But it keeps that chassis planted and comfortable and compliant. Key things there. When you plop it in comfort, it works as advertised. It's just incredibly comfortable without actually making the thing this wallowy mess. So they've really struck a nice balance. And the, the huge benefit with active suspension or semi-active suspension is that you can dive in and fix suspension settings within you know, a couple of clicks. And so throughout the day, you know, even though the hustle and bustle of a press trip, I'm sitting there messing with suspension settings between photo passes, essentially. And you can get a really good idea of where, where a bike can go pretty quickly. And that's what I love about semi-active suspension for the road. So I think it's an absolute perfect fit here. But talking geometry, we're kind of in that sport touring realm. You know, it's got, you know, a 58.1 inch wheelbase, you know, 24, 7.7 .7 degree rake, 4.1 inches of travel. Cool, honky-dory, that all seems par for the course. But the way this thing handles and the way that it deals with its 514 pound curb weight is pretty excellent i'll say you know when it's when you're traveling at low speeds you're on these tight hairpin corners it tends to want to tip in a little faster than maybe you'd expect it to because of those geometry figures but that characteristic helps it just navigate tight urban environments and tight hairpin corners really easily it just gets on the edge of the tire boom you're in and out the really sort of you know second and third flowing stuff it just loves there's tons of mechanical grip it's super easy to turn in 
I'm not going to say that this motorcycle's um, agile in the same way that a sport bike is, where it just wants to snap onto the edge of the tire and do things like that. It's actually incredibly stable. So what a lot of reviewers will say is that it needs some direction. And I would like to amend that for this motorcycle specifically. I would say that it takes direction very well. So if you're riding the V100 and you're like, oh, I just want to peel into this corner nice and aggressively, and you give it a little bit of input, boom, it's right there. You don't need to force it through anything. It just loves to do what the rider wants to do, essentially. I think that's a great characteristic that applies to not only sport touring styles of riding, which this bike is clearly capable of because of its, its uh, accessories and luggage accessories and wind protection, et cetera, et cetera. But also that translates to low speed riding where it's a casual roadster in the streets. You know, that's why it's tough to really pinpoint this bike because it kind of does both. And it doesn't necessarily do one of those aspects better than the other. It just simply does them. So in that sense, it's extremely versatile. But that kind of sums up handling overall. Okay, good. <clears throat> what about uh, comfort, ergonomics? Is it, uh, again, it looks like a sporty upright. Yeah, yeah, precisely. And, you know, looking at photos of this, seeing it in person, it looks a little bit, you know, on the smaller side, you might be looking at the seat to foot peg ratio. You might think, oh, that could be a little cramped. You know, it kind of looks like it has that sportier, sport touring ergonomic setup, you know, something like the Suzuki GSX S1000 GT or um, Kawasaki Ninja 1000 uh, SX um, sort of thing. So a modern inline four sport touring layout. And then you sit on it and as we mentioned before, there's a lot of stuff that this bike has going on that makes it really well-rounded. So I would say that the, the narrow chassis and, and seat height make this extremely accommodating for a wide variety of, of riders. You know, whether you're on the shorter end of the spectrum or tall, I think you're gonna be doing okay. That lower seat height combined with the fact that it is a fairly narrow chassis overall allowed me to just reach the deck with no problems. And a lot of the shorter riders on the trip had the same feeling. I also wasn't cramped. And for the record, I have a 32 inch inseam stand at five foot 10 inches. You can also get a shorter option seat that takes things down to 31.5 inches or a tall option at 32.9. Now, looking at the handlebar configuration, you might think, oh, it looks a little long, like you're kind of stretching out to the handlebars. And it doesn't really do that to you. It doesn't rake you over that, that fuel tank. It's kind of right in that middle ground when we talk about ergonomics. I think it's incredibly comfortable for my size. I think you just kind of nestle into the motorcycle. You have good wind protection, not only from the jugs of the engine, but also the fairing, the adjustable uh, windscreen, and then also the active aerodynamics that we'll mention later. Um, but ergonomically, again, it's one of those things that really, really blends well with the chassis behavior where if you're just cruising along at, you know, traffic speeds, which we got a lot of around Lake Como because we were riding on a beautiful Sunday afternoon around one of the 
hottest Italian tourist spots. Um, and also it's the unofficial day for every Italian motorcyclist to be on the road we were on. But um, <laughs> yeah, you know, if you're cruising around at low speed, you're going to be pretty happy. And then when you start actually riding with some intention, that's when you can start using that big upright handlebar to start guiding the bike around and just, you know, get your elbows out. And I didn't confirm this, but the handlebar is suspiciously close to what we'd see on a Tuono V4. I don't think they're the same exact model, but you get the idea. Um, yeah, so overall, I would say there's a win for, for ergonomics. And we still haven't really dug into the, the wind protection stuff, which is super important for this bike. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's that's all sort of part of the looks. I have to say, I really like the looks of it. It definitely has that sort of slightly Aprilia design team, slightly angular look to it. Um, even with the, you know, the bags fitted on it, and I don't know if those come with it or if they're an, an accessory, but it looks really good. It looks really together. Um, looks really, you know, designed as a cohesive machine. So in terms of wind protection, presumably with the bags, it is a viable sport touring machine or even a touring machine. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, getting on the bike, you kind of realize that it isn't this huge touring kind of land yacht. So it's not, it's not to the same scale as say a BMW K1600 uh, platform motorcycle. It's not that size. It's also not as cramped as a sport motorcycle by any stretch of the imagination. It's in between. Like it, sort of a thing that you'll notice in this, this podcast is it's in between a lot of things. And that to me is kind of Gucci in a nutshell where they've always done their own thing. And they always will. They always find a way. And it's always different from everyone else. So it might be familiar here, here, and here, but it's always Gucci no matter what. And this is a great example of that. You're tying contemporary with classic design. And that's something that Gucci does incredibly well, as do other brands like Triumph and Harley-Davidson. Oh. Wind protection, you have that adjustable windscreen that you can adjust from the switch gear. You just kind of click over, over in the menu a couple of times, go to that setting, up and down you go, all honky-dory. That's great. Nice little feature. I actually thought it worked really great for me in the lower setting. I didn't get any excessive turbulence or anything like that, so I was pretty happy taller guy or gal they might want to raise or lower it but you have that option great now sort of the thing that sets this motorcycle apart from its competitors um, is it has an adaptive aero system we kind of touched on it earlier but this is essentially how it works if you're to look at the photos of the bike right on the top of the fuel tank you'll see what appears to be these little cutouts and essentially they're louvers that extend at a predetermined speed to accommodate you know, a, an extra bit of wind protection. Motoguzzi says that it's approximately 22% or a 22% reduction in air pressure on the rider. Now, putting these things into practice, I would say that it's comparable to what the louvers on the BMW K1600 uh, platform has. Those are adjustable using your hands like a disgusting peasant I can't believe <laughs> okay. ask this of us. Disgusting. Um, and Motoguzzi takes things into the new era and 
adjust them automatically. There's actually this kind of uncanny, um, I've never experienced anything like this. So when they extend automatically, it's like, are we about to take off? What's happening? <laughs> but, you know, according to Motoguzzi, um, and again, you can program these things to open at, at as low as I think it's something like 20 miles an hour or something, whatever. And you can open them in any map or ride mode, I should correctly say. In sport and road, the adaptive aerodynamics don't open up, uh, basically because Motoguzzi engineers assumed, well, if you're in those modes, you're probably riding more aggressively and you're focused on, you know, sport riding. So what do you care? And, you know, that's a, a sort of nonchalant way to describe exactly what they told us, essentially. For touring and rain, they extend to give that extra buffer of protection. Again, it's not a life-changing amount of wind protection. You know, look at the size of the wings. Look at what logically you think they could deliver to the riding experience. For me, it kind of added some wind protection around the thigh and waist areas specifically. And overall, the motorcycle, despite its tastefully nude appearance, which Motoguzzi kind of always does because they want to showcase that 90-degree V-twin engine, you know, you have the jugs, you have the fuel tank and the fairing assembly, the adjustable windscreen, and that all offers a lot of wind protection. That just gives you an extra sniff. So is it life-changing? Is, is it this revolutionary thing? I wouldn't describe it as such. I would say that it's subtle, but noticeable. And that's also what I would describe the loopers on the BMW K1600 as as well. It is, it is appreciable. And if you're expecting more from it, then you'll be disappointed. You need to understand what this does. You know, it's not, it, it's sometimes motorcyclists can get this, you know, an idea about something like, oh, it didn't completely block out the land. And like, well, it's, it was never supposed to. So there's that. I don't want to oversell it. I don't want to undersell. It. This is what happened. Um, but it's a cool feature. And as we see with any cool feature, you want to see where it goes from now. So while I like this feature here, what is Motoguzzi going to do with this in, say, five, 10 years? And how will this apply in other areas? How will this apply to superbikes? I don't know, but I'm intrigued by all of them. And then to answer your question earlier, are the bags an accessory? Yes, they are an optional accessory. The good news is you don't have to buy any uh, attachment options. There's no mounting hardware. They did this really, really cool idea. I haven't seen it before. There might be an example of it. But if you look at the subframe, you'll see a little notch where the saddlebag slides into place. Well, if you pull off the passenger uh, seat or pillion seat, you'll notice that there are these two channels where the saddlebags lock in. And then they also lock in against the, uh, the foot peg or the passenger foot pegs as as is par for the course now all you got to do is put that pillion seat back on the bike bingo bingo your saddlebags are now installed on the motorcycle right it's that easy which is awesome because some brands do saddlebags better than others <laughs> not to name names <laughs> yeah that's very true very true okay all right so lastly, it looks like it's got some pretty serious braking components on it. It's got uh, Brembo's on there. And so 
looks it, it definitely has a pretty strong sporting aspect to it without a doubt oh yeah for sure you know the thing that's interesting is this isn't your latest and greatest from brembo this is the tried and true brembo m4.32 caliper now we've known that caliper for quite a while now and in this application with a nice radial master cylinder i think it deserves top scores again it's slowing a bike that weighs something like 414 pounds fully fueled and so that's that's a decent amount of weight especially when you start chucking this thing through the corners and and you know doing some fun stuff did you say 414 pounds or 440 no no, no. 514 Oh, 514 pounds. Okay, sorry, I misheard. Okay, 514 pounds. Yeah, that's that's not light. Yes, it's not heavy. It's by no means is it heavy, but it's not it's not as light as as some of them. No, no. And see, here's the thing that we got to remember: one, sport touring motorcycles tend to be heavier than their pure sporting compatriots. You know, if you look at the weight and you compare it to, like I mentioned before, the Kawasaki. Ninja 1000 SX or the GSX S1000 GT, sort of our contemporary Japanese sport touring motorcycles, this sort of died in the wool sport touring bikes. It's on par with that in terms of weight. Um, I really also don't think that this bike directly compares or competes with those motorcycles at all. It's a completely different feel, different performance level and different riding experience overall. One, I think the Mandela is more versatile and two, it's a twin, and it's just a different experience overall. I'd actually say this bike, if it had a true competitor, it would be something like the Ducati Supersport uh, 950, uh, specifically the S model. Um, however, that's besides the point. Back to the braking. You do have cornering ABS and lean angle sense of traction control. Again, that's a first for Moto Guzzi. Super important to point out. And although the ABS modes are non-adjustable, doesn't really matter. It's a road bike. I never had any issues with the ABS and I definitely bit into those binders pretty darn hard when you're coming around some blind corners. And then you say, Alora, there is a cyclist sitting there. <laughs> now our listeners can't see my gesture. But, um, there's a, we'll say a thumb to middle finger sort of <laughs> Italian gesture that one of our lead riders uh, demonstrated in a, in a situation <laughs> like that. But, With um, practiced ease. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah it, was, it was great. Um, but yeah, the, the braking systems work really well. And again, we're not using Brembo stylemas and things like that. It's, it's using established hardware and it does excellent. So really kind of comes back to choosing the right master cylinder for the application and having the right geometry and making stuff work. And yeah, that's kind of what it comes down to there. So, so yeah, overall been super pleased with the, you know, our first taste of the Moto Guzzi V100 Mandela, um, the S model in particular, and, you know, save for the quick shifter needing a little bit of work and yeah, there's some, you know, heat dissipation that you can feel or uh, some excessive heat dissipation that you can feel when you're at low speeds or stopped, mainly because if you look under the motorcycle in the photos, you see that 
hunk and bread box of a catalytic converter, which pretty much every bike has to deal with these days. It's not just the Monoguzzi. Um, and you will feel a little bit of that, but you get your head in the wind, literally doesn't matter. Um, and just the versatility of this motorcycle. Like you pointed out, it, it has luggage accessories. You can pop those on and off and make it into a traditional sports or you leave them off and it's just your everyday roadster. Um, you know, that, and that, that really boils down to the fact that it's just this super compliant chassis, a very easygoing riding position. You have lots of wind protection as well. You know, the, the water cooling, all of the engine tech, the, the IMU based rider aids, all of that is just icing on the cake to a bike that is incredibly versatile. Again, I know I keep hammering that word, but that's kind of the way it is. So summing it all up, I think Motoguzzi has done an excellent job and they've done it true to form in their own sort of unmistakably Motoguzzi style. And yeah, that's down. what I enjoy about it. Yeah. What's the, uh, what's the retail price on it? Has that been announced yet? Yes. So recapping the MSRPs for the S model, you were looking at $17,490. And for the standard model, $15,490. And I would like to point out that that price differential is actually better than what we usually see when talking about a conventionally suspended motorcycle and one that features semi-active suspension. Usually it's about a 3K price difference. Here, we're only seeing two. So I'd say, you know, Motoguzzi is uh, doing something good there. But overall, yeah, like I said, that sort of Aprilia, Piaggio, Motoguzzi connection they're going to be doing some cool stuff in the future. And even though I asked about 30 different times uh, at different points of the dinner as well, just to like see if anyone would slip, really excited about where this engine goes and where the engine is going in this bike in particular. So, yeah. Excellent. Sounds like you really liked it. I have to say, I love the look of it. it I'd love to ride this thing. It looks great. Yeah. Looks awesome. All right. Well, thank you very much for your insights, as always. Um, appreciate your time. Uh, I will talk to you soon. Yeah, cool. In this second segment, associate editor TJ Adams chats with artist Carl Hoffman. We recently met Carl at his art gallery H in the small historic town of Tubac, Arizona. Carl's life journey has been nothing short of extraordinary, and of course, it has involved motorcycles pretty much all the way. As a painter and jewelry designer, Carl's fine art and spectacular jewelry is its absolutely spellbinding. As an artist herself, TJ spent a long time talking to him and admiring the fruit of his considerable talents. His life story turned out to be so compelling that she decided on the spot that she'd like to talk to him and share it with you. This is the first part of two. So do you live in Tubac? You live near the gallery? Actually, no. I'm uh, 30 miles west of Tubac. And uh, what most people ask me the first thing is, well, what's out there? And I say, nothing. <laughs> There's a little town of Aravaca not too far from us. We're 23 miles in from the highway. And uh, we live on 10 acres. And we border, our back fence borders 120,000 acres of the Buenos Aires Wildlife Refuge. 
So we're very rural and uh, we, we have our horses and our, I have my bike. I love this road. It's a windy road. So it's kind of fun out here. Uh, it was just a stopping off spot. We bought a little log home here and uh, we've been here 18 years. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it funny the way it goes? <laughs> the unplanned events that happen. Yeah, well, we have our three studios. We fell into the gallery and uh, that's kind of where we're at, coming into our busy season. Audrey's rehanging the gallery today, so. Oh, that's a big job. Your, gal your gallery is fabulous. I mean, two back I hadn't been to before, and yeah. that's fantastic. For those that are listening and don't know, that's in Arizona, nearest to Tucson, mm -hmm. um, or Tucson, as I like to say, so that I can spell it correctly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, two back is beautiful, and your gallery is just fabulous. Well, thank yeah. you. Thank you. It, uh, my wife was actually the, uh, the director of the previous gallery for six years, and then we took it over, and we've had it 10 years. So she had quite a client list built up and we had a gallery together in Colorado too. So, but it was a little different. It was more of a trading post. I had a little gun shop and it was a lot of fun, but now we're into the fine art and uh, back into jewelry making. seems like I always end up back at the bench. <laughs> That's um, a nice eclectic selection of, I have to say top notch, you know, the artwork there and you jewelry, all of the designs you've got, you know a collection great collection of artists there within yeah we have about 25 artists some local some national some international and then of course we have contemporary art we're we're the the main contemporary gallery in Tubac. we're not totally traditional southwest right we do the uh fine jewelry and then we also carry several other lines of jewelry my wife makes jewelry now she's done it 10 years so beautiful and you've got sculptures as well now do you ship all over the world right yep. yeah you've got some amazing sculptures which for people on big properties I, yeah, I just, uh well those big big ones we'd have to take a flatbed and deliver it but we can mm -hmm. go anywhere in the united states and deliver it you know uh but they're expensive uh anyway we uh we enjoy the gallery it's it's a lot of fun and we just launched a new e-commerce site which we're pretty excited about so that's a big deal yes yeah yeah so now we're going to be able to go to uh, artgallerych.com sign up and uh, i'm really going to resurrect some of my old biker molds from my bike jewelry and stuff that'll be going up soon and then we send out a once a month uh, newsletter and we keep to once a month because i hate getting spam mail i hate you know yes too much and plus i just can only get the energy to do it once a month <laughs> yeah of course it's it's been a real adventure and uh you know thanks for having me here and, and listening to my uh, story uh nothing's made up it's all real because i couldn't make it up <laughs> <laughs> no i know when we started chatting it was just and, unbelievable <laughs> yeah. so I, you know i come from a family of of uh adventurers i would say you know, my, my grandfather, he was a cabin boy on the old square riggers in the late 1800s. And he worked his way up to first mate on the schooners and so then settled on Cape Cod. You know, my, uh, my mother studied business and at 23 years old, uh, there was a call for typists to process war reports. Right. So she headed off to Germany on a troop ship. There was no civilian transportation in 1946, just after the war ended. Uh, and she was in a huge Quonset hut with rows of typists. So my mother quickly advanced because she was not only a typist, took shorthand, but she was bilingual in German and English. Mm. Uh, so she was quickly moved up to the government offices, 
where my father's held a high my father held a high position as a resident officer which is a governor under martial law right and what's interesting that all the civilian guns had to be turned into his administration so he was called to hunt wild boar and deer that were getting into the rural fields and destroying crops and people were starving at that time there was no good so uh, he taught my mother to hunt and they went out and uh, the meat went to feeding the villagers yeah and they would have been seen as the protectors i mean the villagers would have been relying yeah. on them. uh so my journey starts at a u.s military hospital in frankfurt germany in 1951 so, and then i came to the united states See, i took cape cod to settle there uh but i always liked motorcycles i had a small metal police toy bike and i used to drive up and down the arm or the couch with it making <laughs> motor sounds with my mouth and uh I liked anything with a motor. So growing up on Cape Cod, it was pretty rural in the late 50s. You know, I could shoot my 22 in the backyard. Uh, I lived on a huge lake before cars. My main transportation was aluminum boat with a motor. Sounds like heaven for little boys. Yes. Uh, my, my boat was bought with uh, money from mowing lawns. Excellent. And uh, so here, in, in, I'm going to jump ahead to high school. It was 1966. I was a high school freshman, and we heard there was a new motorcycle shop in town. Whether well, we knew there wasn't any, right? So of course, my buddies and I, we all had to trot down and check it out. And <laughs> one of my buddies and I had always fantasized about getting bikes after graduation and traveling across the country. It was a dream. Um, so I went with him down to the bike shop, and there, on a pedestal, was a Harley Davidson, and it was turning. I can still picture it exactly the way it was in my mind. It was the blue with white fringe, white saddlebags, the banana seat and the grips were white with white tassels. Must've been like a vision. I mean, you wouldn't have seen anything like that before. I couldn't believe who could pay $1,200 for a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> that was before the Electroglide. I think they came out in 67 and they went up to about $1,800. Uh, but, you know, considering my first car was an old Triumph TR3 that I bought for $350. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> and I don't know what year it was, but. <laughs> I'd hate to think what that's worth now, if it's still around. Yeah, really, if it's still around. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, I did get my first motorcycle, you know, in high school. And it was an old BSA 441 Victor. Mm. It had one single cylinder with a compression release, thank God. And it did one, one of three things it would do. Uh, on occasion, it would actually start or would ratchet through and plant your foot on the ground. Or the other trick the motorcycle's repertoire was to catch the spring and bounce back. Anyway, it was a hoot and it took me in a lot of local adventures. I'd headed up the power lines and all over down to the beach and here and there. But uh, throughout high school, skiing was my passion. And I worked every day after school at my father's TV shop. And then I headed up to New Hampshire almost every weekend to ski. Uh, but my senior year, I was looking good at a uh, professional skiing career. I was kind of looking at the uh, giant slalom because uh, it was fast. You like speed then. <laughs> and I did. I always liked to go fast, whether it was on <laughs> skis or whatever it was, uh, which got me into trouble over the years. So I applied for a job at the ski patrol up at Wildcat Mountain, which is the largest one in New Hampshire. 
And the test was simple. If I could keep up with the head of the ski patrol, I had the job wow. for the following year. Well, it really wasn't that simple. I went to the summit of the mountain and down we headed. And I'm glad I like speed, but it was not on the trail. <laughs> it was through the timber, between the power lines, over down timber, over rocks and boulders. And uh, just about every obstacle known to man, to tell the truth. Wow, that's a harsh test, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't know the mountain and wilderness was that rugged. <laughs> anyway, in the end, I kept, kept right on his trail. I'm glad because he couldn't see my face. <laughs> and arrived right behind him as we skidded to the stop in front of the first aid hut. And mm. I got the job. But meanwhile, I head back home and I was exercising my neighbor's horse. And of course, we were going fast. More speed. Uh, <laughs> and I did quite frequently take him to the beach in the off season and run through the waves. Well, one particular day, I decided to uh, cut through the cemetery. And I was at a good gallop along the gravel roads when we veered a little off the end of the trail. And I got hit in the forehead by a low limb snapping my head back and breaking my neck and then sending me backwards, landing on my head the other way, forcing it forward and breaking my neck a second time. Oh gosh, you broke your neck twice in- Twice in the same accident, yep. Jeez. And it was, yeah, but I was, I was alive, I was laying there and the horse tried to get in the ambulance with me. Some people driving by saw it. <laughs> uh, and, so after a very involved operation and a complete rebuild of my neck with bone and from my hip, finally got out of the hospital and took up residence on my father's couch to complete my long recuperation. Yeah, I bet it would have been a long time. Uh, you know, and what was I to do now? I mean, a new path. Everything was gone. We have to start all over again. Uh, it was a little while until my hair grew in because they had shaved for the operation. Right. And you couldn't consider going back to skiing or anything physical like that? Nothing physical. Um, so I started to search for a new path and, and not really knowing where or what, or even if I would fully heal. So to make a long story, just a little shorter, I met a silversmith that took me under his wing uh, as an apprentice because he had broken his neck in a car accident, oddly enough, and used his insurance settlement to go to jewelry school. Oh. Uh, was I creative enough? I don't know. Have you done anything like that before at all? I never even went in the art room in high school. <laughs> How funny. Yeah, well, in the, in the 60s, the hippies hung out there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, but I need something, a trade that I could physically do. Uh, so it was worth a try. Well, until you have a medium to work with and discover the talent, uh, you don't really know if you are creative. So I found out that I was creative and I loved designing and making silver jewelry and now wanted to learn more. Well, the old heading west was still in the back of my head. Right. Uh, so I started, I, I went west and since everything's west of Cape Cod, my first stop was New York City. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, I, I imagine there's a road sign that just says to the west. <laughs> head west, right. So. I settled into a new adventure in Manhattan. Uh, I was lucky I was here, there at the height of the disco era. I got an apartment on the Upper West Side and started to explore the city. And, and of course, my first stop was 47th Street, which is the center of the world jewelry market. All right. I found, yeah, so I finally landed an interview with one of the 
and it's just keep out there and trying, you know, uh, with one of the top jewelry manufacturers, his name was Kurt Wayne, uh, who designed and made the custom jewelry for Van Cleef and Arpels, Tiffany's, Neiman Marcus. Wow. They were just was right up there with yeah, Harry Winston. Top notch, yes. Top of the line. So I was told that uh, my work was very clean and the designs were nice, but I would have to forget everything I knew and it would take at least three-year apprenticeship to be productive for the company. Right. Had to re, sort of rethink your... Yeah. So it was six months at a time besides each old master in his area of jewelry making from diamond setting, chain making, clasps, wax work, everything under the sun. What a fantastic opportunity to learn from the old masters. It really was. But... I was productive right away because soldering was kind of my forte and I started to work right away in that line. Uh, sometimes it would, I would spend three weeks on one piece of jewelry, just setting it up and soldering it. Uh, wow. So here I am in my 20s, living the dream, New York City, height of the disco era. <laughs> and <laughs> Clubbing every night. <laughs> you know, it was great. And I recuperated, you know, it was, I was feeling good. Uh, yeah, and I did get into Studio 54 once at its high point. Excellent. <laughs> there were some hideaway bars that, well, one in particular in the warehouse district down by Studio Four, 54 was this band who had some kind of new and innovative music, wasn't really getting heard. So they bought a bar and it would be real chick now, but back then it was a dive with paint showing and, and pipes. <laughs> And they called the bar and they played every night there and jammed and they called the bar. They named it after themselves. And the bar was called Ramones. Oh, wow. Goodness. And what a great <laughs> marketing strategy as well. From yeah. the Ramones. Wow, that's amazing. I didn't know that. <laughs> so now it's completely healed. I'm, I'm working out, dancing on weekends. Uh, something was amiss, though. I realized that... Uh, as a young, energetic guy, uh, ready to go out in the world, uh, working eight hours a day, living in a world the size of a file card, uh, mm. and having to sit still was killing me. Yeah, of course, you're just doing really close-up work and focusing, concentrating. As much as I love when my apprenticeship was done, as much as I love the jewelry, uh, it so happened one weekend I went to, the, to an auto show, and I was looking at Jeeps and fantasizing about how fun it would be. And well, I called in sick on Monday, went down to Manhattan American Motors and bought a brand new CJ7. <laughs> You've got some impulses going on there. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> and so what didn't fit in the Jeep didn't go. Now I lived in a doorman building. So I just walked out to the front desk and I dropped my keys and told the guy at the desk, I said, you can have anything in the apartment you want. Goodbye. Gee, and that was it. You just, just literally moved into the jeep yep well so and i had to leave the front seat open for my dog so oh. i had my jewelry tools and my stereo and some clothes that i would probably never wear on my next adventure but uh, off i went the mm -hmm. the cj7 was a whopping price tag of six thousand five hundred dollars <laughs> yeah that would have been a lot of money back then it was, but, you know, it was working. And so I put it in a parking garage for the night before I headed out. And that was that. Uh, so I was living a dream again, crossing the country, heading west and uh, taking in all the sights and smells. 
uh, when I went through Denver, I saw the Rockies ahead, and that's when I knew I was west. Right, yeah. Uh, so across two mountain passes and one long tunnel was before I descended into Vail, Colorado, which was my destination. Uh, and it was a great reunion seeing my buddy, and he had a room there ready for me. Uh, we partied hard for a couple of weeks, and so then it was time to look for a job. So he was the guy that you originally were talking about a motorcycle run with. Yep, but he made it out there by vehicle, but he was living in Vail, and uh, that was that was my destination. But uh, now a job in the off-season was a little rough. Mm. Um, so I ended up working as a breakfast waiter for a little while, and at least I got breakfast, but that was a horrible <laughs> job. So <laughs> I worked on a painting crew, which was really good money, and was eventually foreman of uh, an airless crew, uh, we painted the largest of the inns and hotels, uh, oh, which right. meant dragging an airless sprayer. Uh, the main part was on the bottom, and you'd take the hose all the way up a 40-foot ladder and start at the top and work your way down. Good grief. And then, yeah, now you wouldn't get me on a 10-foot ladder, okay? <laughs> oh, I think health and safety wouldn't allow it. <laughs> you know, the snow started, started in, and the painting was over, and the company <laughs> now switched gears and now i'm shoveling snow off rooftops this is crazy the big hotels had heat strips along the edge of the gutters and they still had to be shoveled and cleared because they'd ice up so we wore cleats and a rope around our waist usually just tied to a vent pipe or whatever we could find and I remember looking down four stories, the snow and the wind were howling. I was watching the skiers come in thinking to myself, there's got to be a better way to make a living. Yeah. It sounds like you were never short of get, getting yourself, you know, a job, making a change and trying something new. I was, I'm wandering through the shops one day at the base of the, the, uh, the hill and strolled into a little mom pa jewelry store. Well, you know where this is going. We got to talking. <laughs> And lo and behold, they just so happened to need a jeweler. I mean, and where are you going to find one in Vail, Colorado, just passing through? So here I was, the break I was looking for. Lucky for them, you were passing through. Yeah, so here I could ski and, and make jewelry. I soon outgrew my room at my friend's house, and uh, we ended up uh, renting a condo and setting up a jewelry uh, studio of my own. And it was, it was great. It was a lot of fun and uh, making high-end jewelry and being able to ski every day. But a couple of years went by and I still had that itch to scratch. So I headed for Denver and rented a house in Cherry Creek. Yeah, you like uh, to move around, don't you? Yeah, and, and it, became, that's be, it became malls and high-end stores later on, but back then it was just small cottages. Uh, and I set up a decent freelance jewelry business where I would go into these little small family-run businesses and I'd work for the day or two days, and I just catch them up on their orders, repairs, and custom work. And so I had a few of those around the area, and it was a lot of fun. Um, Denver had some decent weather, really, all year round, except for a few snowstorms. Right, so you liked it there. So it was nice, and you could ride, and, uh, and that was pretty nice. So I decided to get a motorcycle and started looking through the papers, and lo and behold, I found a Harley-Davidson in the garage back in Vail. <laughs> Calling for you again. <laughs> yes. So a fellow had bought it and had it shipped out from the east and was scared to ride it. Well, I would. Yeah, that does happen. But lucky for you, 
Yeah. So there I was facing my dream bike. It was a 1980 Harley with only 3,000 miles on it. And it's $4,200 is what we, I got them down to. So that was love at first sight. It was. And I was riding at home over the passes with a big smile on my face. And after, of course, after a year or two at Denver, an old friend of mine came to visit and from the jewelry business in New York. It was early, early fall and an absolutely beautiful day. So she said, let's head down to Durango. I have some friends there. I didn't realize where Durango was. But and it was beautiful when we left. But two days later, we arrived in a snowy Durango. <laughs> it was a two-day trip. To get down. So you rode two days and yep. some beautiful weather to... <laughs> to Durango. I think we stopped in Walsenburg and got a room there and, and partied a little bit at the local saloon and then moved on the next day. Uh, so started pretty early in the morning and, and didn't really want to go. So anyway, oh backtracking a little bit uh we got to the bottom before durango we got to the bottom of wolf creek pass and a fellow at the gas station said watch out when you come out of the tunnel there's a six inch lip of ice there <laughs> okay and there was so we took it easy up through the pass and we got down into durango that was nice of you. and then it snowed for four days jeez so well my friend had to get back to work and the harley davidson uh, didn't miss a beat not at all not at all it, it was a champ uh uh anyway she had to get back to work so she flew out of the little local airstrip and i parted a little while longer until there was a sunny day once there was a sunny day the roads were a little clear i headed back to denver and uh i started pretty early in the morning really didn't want to go over wolf creek pass again really after four days of snow considering the storm so i dropped down a little bit into new mexico and came up across the high plains by way of Alamosa. The roads were clear from the sun, but there was a little bit of slush here and there. And you were just on your own? Just, I was all by myself and just crossing the high plains. Uh, mountains are beautiful. Uh, and I don't remember why I had taken my front fender off. <laughs> but, so I tied a couple of bandanas to my front forks. I think we've all done that. And that helped a bit. And I, I came through Alamosa just before dark. And realized this is going to be the last stop if I wasn't going any further. I saw a sign, uh, there was a bar there in the town called the Purple Pig, which looked like a biker <laughs> bar. Right. And just a little way down the road, I got a motel room, uh, put the bike inside and headed down to the Purple Pig, see if I get something to eat and a beer and warm up a bit. Find your sort of people. Yeah, well, one of the guys there asked if, I, if that was me who went by on a bike. <laughs> Because <laughs> obviously I wasn't from around there. Right. <laughs> I told the story of the trip. And, you know, of course, now drinks were being bought and I was having a grand old time. <laughs> it was too cold for any bikes out in front, but not me. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the next day I headed out across the high plains and it was beautiful but cold. I was pretty bundled up. I used to wear a down jacket under my leather jacket. And of course, wool socks, long underwear, jeans, chaps topped off of the wool watch cap. Wow, you must look like the Michelin man. <laughs> really? So I cruised along and uh, I made it to Morrison, Colorado, which is in the foothills just, just before Denver and uh, where I stopped for a beer before heading to Denver. It was a beautiful day. There were a lot of bikes out, kind of like the day I left. They're all washed and shiny, but not me and my bike. 
<laughs> the first thing someone asked was, where did you come from? <laughs> because you were covered in all sorts of road, road dirt and, and my bike. And I mean, it was, yeah, we were pretty crusty. So I said, well, the farthest point south the other day was uh, New Mexico. <laughs> and more drinks were bought. <laughs> so I finally made it home and I realized that that probably wasn't the smartest trip I ever took. <laughs> so, and then after a little bit in uh, Denver, I ended up moving to Boulder that summer and spent a lot of time rocking in the Rockies. Just above Boulder, heading up the Boulder Canyon was a little town of Netherland. And I think the bar was called the Pioneer Inn. Anyway, it was a, it was a quaint little place. It was a beautiful evening drive up through Boulder Canyon. Uh, it was kind of windy and fun and there were a few accidents because you had to pay attention. The only thing ever happened to me on that road was <laughs> I got hit by in the chest by a bird and once a bee got in my beard. Oh, wow. <laughs> you know, that's a fiasco. A few wildlife incidents. <laughs> so I have, through a windy canyon road, I've got one hand on the throttle and the other beating my face with my left hand. <laughs> <laughs> well, just... It's, it's part of riding a bike, I guess, you know. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, the sort of things that affect you when you're riding a motorcycle that wouldn't mean anything to a, you know, a, a car. car. Yeah, if you're in a nice company car. Uh, anyway, in the summer of 82, a few of the local bikers were heading up to a place called Sturgis up in South Dakota someplace. And had you heard of that before? No, I'd never heard of Sturgis before, believe it or not. Uh, so I was up for a summer summer ride. Uh, so that took us through the Black Hills, which is beautiful country. We decided to stop uh, in Deadwood and play tourists. And I'm glad we did because prostitution was still illegal and gambling hadn't come in. And we toured the opium dens under the drugstore from the 1800s. <laughs> I bet you were glad. <laughs> yeah, well, they, we didn't, they were closed to use. They were just a museum. <laughs> the 1800s was... Anyway... Uh, it was closed to the public later when gambling came in and they cleaned up the town. But at then it was the wild predecessor to Sturgis. So Yeah, it's, it's an attractive little place, actually. We went there a few months back and I loved it. You know, they've still got lots of those quaint little old buildings. Yeah, I think there's a big casino now over the top yeah. of where the opium dens used to be where Wild Bill Hickok used to frequent. But, you know, it was a wild place. Yes, uh, so we camped in City Park, which was open for camping, but it was the last year that it would ever be open. Things got pretty crazy in there, and the police decided that it was too dangerous to go in, so they just left the park to its own demise, and the party went on and got wilder. <laughs> so, and of course, we had to stop at Mount Rushmore on the way out. Yes. I still have a bottle opener on my key ring that's stamped Sturgis 82. Oh, that's fantastic. Wow. <laughs> oh, well, you know, uh, fall was was here and uh, winter was closing in fast. I bet you got itchy. You wanted to move again. I, I got to move again, you know, and, you know, still with this Western idea, you know, to get West. So I decided to continue my journey West toward a uh, warmer weather. And at least I'd have finally crossed the country. Uh, slowly but surely, and maybe not all by motorcycle, I decided to head to San Diego by bike. I, think I made it across the country, you know, by car and, and Jeep, but uh, 
I headed to San Diego on my motorcycle and uh, going, going a little lighter, of course, I stored my jewelry equipment, packed my saddlebags and uh, pointed west. And this is and on the same, the same Harley Davidson or we bought another motorcycle? No, same bike. I'm still riding the same bike. You know, I love that bike, but it kind of took a lot of changes. You know, it went from a, a classic stock Harley Davidson into uh, a wide glide front end with heavier to big tanks, five gallon tanks, a pangers. And, you know, <laughs> it got customized. Customization, just trying different things. Yep. Yep. I, I wanted to get over the passes before Rinder really set in. And uh, so the trip to California was another adventure in itself. Met a lot of friendly people, stopped here and there to party a bit. And I always remember the rock formations as I was heading into the Laguna Mountains, and stopping and uh, little wide spots in the road. There was a place called Dog Patch. And this was an old biker destination on weekends with a bar. Uh, up in the lagunas above San Diego. All right. Had a little restaurant. So there was a nice grassy spot under the tree for a much needed nap after a meal and a beer. Uh, but this wasn't the last time I'd frequent this place. <laughs> We'd come up <laughs> on it. It was going to be a wild place. You know if it's still there? Yep. It's, I, I think it's still there. I don't know. It's been a lot of years. <laughs> I picked Pacific Beach for a destination. Because I liked the name, figured that was all the way west, and it signified that that I was west, as I was going to get. So I got a couple of hot dogs from a vendor on the boardwalk, settled in a quiet section of beach to watch the sunset. So the next morning, I woke up to a beautiful, warm day, little knowing that the next three years would be the craziest years of my life. So you kind of felt you'd made it because you'd got west. I mean, you were a long way then from Cape Cod. Yep, I, I made it west all the way. That's awesome. And what a tangled route. <laughs> oh, it gets better. I'll tell you what, it gets better. But we're going to leave I mean, that for another time. <laughs> yeah, we've been chatting away for nearly, nearly an hour, I think. So, we, yeah, we should certainly do this again and see what else happened um, once you got west. Well, I'll give you, tell you what, I'll give you a little hint, okay, at the next time you talk with me. Uh, I was falling in with the Southern California biker scene. Life is a one percenter, tattoos and long hair, and uh, a lot of adventures. Wow, full on, full on motorcycle stuff. Sounds like you've got a great work ethic. You've gone from one job to another, even despite having a huge accident, which you know for a lot of people probably would have kept them down apart from the physical injuries you know to recover mentally and be able to just grab life by the horns the way you have it's just you know hats off to you that's great well thanks it's a you know the the knee the the neck healed up but they did fuse most of it together so I really don't have a lot of swing I don't look out very far to either direction but you know when i'm on a bus or a plane i can fall asleep and my head doesn't bob <laughs> there's always a silver lining eh <laughs> there is <laughs> take what you can get <laughs> well it's been fabulous and i would like to invite you back we'll have a chat another time we'll um okay. thank you very much for joining us and, and telling us all about your adventures <laughs> and they get wilder and crazier until, until i settle down <laughs> all right we'll catch up again soon Okay. Hey, thanks for having me.